Welcome. It's October 4, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy. You can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kendall, who is a senior research fellow in Arabic and Islamic studies at Pembroke College at Oxford University. Elizabeth, or Liz as I know her, is an expert on Arabic literature and politics. Her work focuses on the connections between militant jihad and cultural production in Arabic, and she's particularly well known today for her work on jihadi poetry and the jihadi movement in Yemen, including especially Al-Qaeda's Yemen-based franchise, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, and the Islamic State's competitor franchise, the so-called Yemen Province. I should also mention that Liz is no armchair scholar, but she's a frequent visitor to war-torn Yemen, where she enjoys close relationships with certain tribes and even heads a grassroots NGO in Yemen's eastern Mahra province. Her most recent article on the Yemen front is titled 20 Years After 9-11, The Jihadi Threat in the Arabian Peninsula, which was published last month by the flagship journal of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. And our discussion will be loosely based around her recent article, which I do most highly recommend. Liz, thank you very much for coming on the Caravan Podcast. Thank you, Cole. Great to be here. So I wanted to begin by asking you about the history of jihadism in Yemen and the trajectory of AQAP and the Islamic State franchise. But I think it might be helpful for our listeners if we start by trying to paint a picture of the political map in Yemen and where the jihadis fit in. So that is my first question. What is going on in Yemen more broadly? What are the contours of the civil war and where do the jihadis fit? Well, I thought you'd leap right in with a really difficult question. And uh, I'm going to try and answer that. I think one of the first points to make is that Yemen is a patchwork of regions and interests. It's not historically an integrated state. And that's a really that's a very, very important point when it comes to figuring out how and where jihadis can slip through the cracks and latch on to a local conflicts. So just really quickly, the north and the south of Yemen only emerged as separate entities from a whole bunch of smaller sultanates, kingdoms and sheikhdoms in the 1960s. The north and south then united in 1990 into a single Yemen, but it was already at war just four years later. Then there were a whole load of protests around the regions, there's a long history of discontent, and then the Arab Spring came along in 2011 and swept Saleh, the uh, three decades long dictator from power. So now, today, Yemen is mired in a civil war that has become internationalized. And the date of this current cycle of war is around September 2014, when the Houthis took over Yemen's capital, Sana'a. Now, just to be clear, the Houthis are a grouping that's political, military, and religious all at the same time, and their religious identity has become increasingly pronounced during the war. They're largely, but not exclusively, a moderate branch of Shiism, uh, as that's called Zaydism. 
Um, and it's different from the one in Iran. It's actually quite close to Yemen's prevalent branch of Sunnism, Shafiism. But the reason I mention this is that what's happened is that with the Houthis becoming increasingly radical and supremacist as the war has gone on, they've been moving closer to Iran. And this whole, this whole Iran on the side of the Houthis and Saudi coming in on the side of the government has turned it into much more of a sectarian conflict. This is where the jihadis come in. So I guess what you could say is that the political situation in Yemen today, you know, there are three main groups. There's the Houthis, these so-called rebels. They're based in Sana'a. They're backed by Iran. There's the government. It's mainly still in Riyadh, some, some of it in Yemen, in, in the south, in Asia. This is the, the internationally, internationally recognized uh, Yemen That's government, right. right? It's the internationally recognized government or other people call it the so-called legitimate government. Uh, and that's, uh, that's headed by President Herdy. And then there's also this third grouping, the Southern Separatists. And they're in Aden, they're backed by the UAE, and nominally they're aligned with the government. But what that means is that three, these three elements have actually all started clashing together. There are se still serious differences between the Saudi-backed forces and the UAE-backed forces, both of them battling the Houthis. So we've got a very fragile state, a lot of active war fronts, over 40 of them, a fragmenting country, proliferating militias and increasing sectarianism. This is an excellent recipe for jihadi groups to take off in. Well, thank you. I know that was a difficult question and there's a lot of nuance to the uh, political situation in Yemen that I think is lost in a lot of the political uh, coverage that I read in the news. It's usually framed as the Iran-backed Houthis versus the so-called uh, Saudi-backed coalition, but there's a lot more uh, layers to the picture. But now that we've resolved that picture, we can take a closer look at some of these jihadi groups that you have focused on. And I thought we could start with uh, AQAP, uh, which is, uh, to repeat, the acronym stands for Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and that group, as you have written, is the larger and more popular of the, of the two jihadi groups in Yemen. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the, the history of, of this group, where it comes from, and what it hopes to achieve? I know these are the tough, big questions at the beginning. <laughs> well, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula... Uh, or let's just call it for now Al-Qaeda, it, it really started to take off in Yemen in the 1990s. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula only formed about a decade ago in 2009. It was the merger of the Yemeni and the Saudi branches of Al-Qaeda into Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So perhaps rather than go through three decades of history, it's probably best just to start with where this present group uh, kicked off. Right, Actually, so, some of the aims that it has, its two main aims have been pretty consistent. The number one aim, of course, is expelling infidels from the Arabian Peninsula and ultimately from all Muslim lands. And the number two aim is establishing a caliphate, ultimately, which it hopes to rule by its version of Islamic law. Um, but the interesting question is, why, why has it taken off and rooted itself in Yemen specifically? I think there are quite a few long-term drivers of extremism in Yemen. There's 
a history of weak state control, rampant corruption, political instability. There's been also a, an explosion in the youth population, puts a lot of pressure on resources. And of course, the geography, the topography, uh, deserts, mountains, rugged terrain, where it's, where it's easy to hide and, and melt away. And then there've also been some particular milestones that have helped shape AQAP and entrench it in Yemen. Uh, one of these that, that's often picked out was a, was a dramatic jailbreak in 2006, where a whole bunch of jihadis managed to break out from Sana'a, the capital's maximum security prison. And that injected a whole new lease of life just at the same time that Saudi jihadis were piling over the border into Yemen following a crackdown in Saudi Arabia. So that led to this merger of the Saudi and Yemeni branches into AQAP. And then there was the uprising, of course, in 2011 that presented a real opportunity because of the security vacuum. And Al-Qaeda did actually manage to launch a, a, an emirate in, in parts of the South in 2011 and 2012, which eventually got squashed, but it learned a lot from that. And then finally, the the pièce de résistance for Al-Qaeda was this present war. It was the Houthi power grab that kicked off the slide into international war in 2015. That was a real boon, that, that sectarianism, that polarised Sunni-Shi'i divide, uh, coinciding with millions of people being displaced, a, a, a massive humanitarian crisis, and, and general anger and resentment, cycles of revenge, and so, although I think it's important to point out that over the last five years, Al-Qaeda has been successively battled by the coalition and its allies, it does thrive in conflict zones. And so Yemen is a really good case in point for, for, for how a jihadist movement has, has managed to feed off that. So this brings me to the question of how how the internationalization of the conflict in that really began in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, how that's affected the prospects uh, of AQAP, which, uh, I, if I understand it correctly, was controlling quite a big a uh, big deal of territory in the south, but uh, particularly the UAE backed forces were uh, responsible for evicting it from a lot of the territory that it controlled at the time. Yeah, so what, what happened in 2015 was that coinciding with the coalition entering the war, with the war becoming internationalised, uh, Al-Qaeda was, was probably the best game in town. It was, recruiting, uh, it was recruiting fighters to do what it considered to be pushing back the infidel Shiites. But actually, of course, it was much more of a, of a political um, struggle but it was pitched, it was framed as uh, uh, an apocalyptic showdown between you know, infidels and true believers. And Al-Qaeda launched itself into what we can only really call a statelet, a kind of proto-state, which it ran out of a port city in the east of Yemen, pretty much unopposed from 2015 until 2016, when, as you've just said, the United Arab Emirates forces managed to oust it. It had done quite a good job of entrenching, and it, and it didn't do that just by latching on to the political squabbles and the war. It took the opportunity to, to actually do governance work. It had a collaborative model 
had partnerships that were truly local and it and it emphasized development projects things like hooking up electricity power stations cleaning up the streets paying for doctors fixing air conditioning in hospitals all sorts of things it didn't focus nearly as much on implementing islamic law really harshly this was a this was of course a deliberate approach they they tried on a couple of occasions to go a bit further to try and be a bit stricter they they blew up shrines they banned a narcotic that people love to chew which is called qats uh, and they had to pretty quickly backtrack because there was a groundswell of opinion against them but you know it is interesting that what we consider to be just a killing organization was so very much more they were trying to win over hearts and minds in ways that barely even reached the press over here so that is something i think that is lost on a lot of people the uh, the dy- dynamism really of aqap and it has a lot of uh, local interests um that that you study but most people in the united states are particularly worried about its terrorist capabilities and intentions this is a group that's of course been responsible for a number of uh mostly uh failed attempts um in the west such as the, the first thing that comes to mind is the 2009 uh, underwear bombing uh, on christmas day um the following year there was a printer cartridge um attempted bombing that was intercepted i think in in the uae or saudi arabia uh and but most even recently i think they were responsible for the 2019 pensacola uh shooting where they took credit for it uh, and had some involvement uh in the united states so it, it is a group that continues to uh discuss a lot in its in its propaganda uh, the idea of attacking the west um so how do you kind of look at the uh, this almost divergence in uh, in strategy, how much does the AQAP focus on on the international as opposed to the domestic? That's really hard to answer. Of course, the international aspects get it a lot of attention and probably help win over radicalizing or on the cusp of being extremist youth and uh, ang- sort of angry populations in its. Uh, home base but it's not at all clear that today al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula is really capable of doing damage abroad it's become much more of a local organization that doesn't mean to say the ambitions not there mm-hmm. and it's interesting you mentioned the 2019 pensacola naval base shooting um, because you know that that shooter was being nurtured by AQAP though perhaps not a direct command and control but but definitely the inspiration was there uh, and he was very interested in AQAP uh, actually the shooter used to follow me on twitter um when i was putting out loads and loads of news on on AQAP on, on a daily basis um so we're all suspects if we follow you on twitter i guess <laughs> i think i'm just using that as an example of his obsession with the group um but yeah and also the the um you know the the video that came out earlier this year in february 2021 it translates roughly as as america and and the the seizure the the painful seizure which was about the storming of the us capital it took great delight in that and was saying in fact that 
you know, oh, isn't it great that Trump supporters are doing the work of the Mujahideen for them for the moment, but we hope to be back. So clearly the ambition is still there, but uh, it, it, it's, it's, not at all, uh, it's not at all obvious that they'd be able to fulfill that ambition. It's not just America, though, that's, that's a target. France as well. France is a very high-ranking target, particularly because of the uh, cartoons that were published in Charlie Hebdo, the a French magazine, which were held. Which it also to, had a hand in, right? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it 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 claimed to, and one of the one of the original um, terrorists did train in in Yemen for a while. Um, also, of course, the French have been active in Africa, trying to put down extremist movements there. So that's another reason for them to hate the French. But I mean, other people on other people on the list of hates. Israel, of course, is always there. Uh, also, now the governments of the UAE and Saudi, and and then other Western countries, but to a lesser degree. I think, you know, the bigger problem nowadays is actually inside Yemen itself, not outside, and particularly now that the war is fragmenting and these militias are proliferating. I, I think that. The bigger problem is going to come if Al-Qaeda takes off again inside Yemen. So looking at that uh, prospect or potentiality, uh, how would you evaluate the kind of the health of the organization as, as a domestic um, organization today? Is it poised to retake territory? Does it control much territory uh, today? And um, yeah, that's, that's the question. Well, I don't think it's poised to retake territory at the moment. So since April 2016, when the UAE forces and their allies uh, took it, took them down in, in Mukulla, it's really been, been downhill. And, and I think that what's happened is that because of all those pressures on the movement from counterterrorism, those external pressures, but also internal pressures from spies, from informers who've riddled their movement uh, and, and ended up in Al-Qaeda being, especially over, since 2017, over the last three to four years, decimated by drone strikes. They've now been forced into a situation where they're having to make alliances with other domestic militias in order to survive. And this is, this is a double-edged sword for for people who are trying to counter the group, because on the one hand, it looks like they've gone away. It looks like they're managed. It looks like they're under control. Their operations mm -hmm. have dwindled to about a tenth of what they were when they were at their, their peak, their guerrilla peak in 2017. So they look like they're under control, but of course, it's just a question of a leopard changing its spots for the time being in order to survive. And actually, the jihadi objectives overlap rather nicely with all sorts of other political, economic and criminal uh, interests and gangs. And just to mention a few, it, it's profiteering from the war, from the smuggling economy. Um, there are lots of, there's lots of overlap in the desire to stoke tensions inside the coalition, to spoil democratic ambitions, to you know, squash hopes of a separate southern state that aligns also with some of the government, pro-government militias. The jihadis see um, a border, a man-made border, dividing north and south as a, 
as, as an artificial border that divides the ummah and also fear a, a throwback to the days of you know godless socialism when in the like when in the 1960s when there was a separate south it was the arab world's first marxist state so they don't want that so this aligning of interests with other warring actors makes it much more difficult to define al-Qaeda today and therefore to monitor it. Yes, this was the another thing that you bring up in your, your article is the definition of AQAP. And it's interesting that uh, you point to a number of, of, of groupings, of, of members of AQAP who you refer to as pragmatic or committed, yet who are not actually fighting for AQAP explicitly and who are, I guess you might call, uh, latent supporters or members of, of AQAP. Um, can you talk a little about that? How much of, of, of that do you think is going on? Yes, I've, I've divided the Al-Qaeda label as it's used today into a whole bunch of categories. And I, I raised that in the article for the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. So I, I won't run through all of those categories right now, but the important thing is that the label Al-Qaeda today is attached to a much broader range of actors than it has been in the past, um, both by the media and by those on the ground. We even have gangs themselves inside Yemen calling themselves Al-Qaeda because they command a higher price uh, when they're mm -hmm. used as guns for hire to fulfill various uh, political agendas. So when Al-Qaeda is mentioned today, in local media, for example, it doesn't necessarily signify a coherent group organized around a religious ideology, but it's, it's much more of an umbrella term for disparate fragments that, that have aligned with various militias and now serve predominantly political and economic agendas. So I guess in other words, what I'm saying is that Al-Qaeda splinters and fragments have been instrumentalized in the overall war by the war by some warring parties. And I, I'm not going to mention any specifically, but it's really hard to be anything other than speculative. So I, I think that's dangerous territory. But also because loyalties are so fluid and because all of the main actors in the Yemen war suffer from deep internal factionalization. So everyone's got their suspicions about who's working with whom, but I, I probably don't want to go into that too deeply. On the record. Sure. I think we should also probably mention that AQAP does have a kind of centralized media platform, uh, puts out videos and articles and attack claims uh, very regularly. One thing that it, it pushed out uh, last week, I think it was last week, was a 60 plus page Arabic document that is intended to provide a kind of definition or explanation for what AQAP is. I found that to be kind of um, fitting given that you had just written an article trying to talk about what AQAP is. So is there anything in that 60-plus uh, page document that sheds light on, on AQAP? Well, so yes, you're right. Of course, Al-Qaeda does have a centralized media platform, Al-Malahim Media, but it's not that. It's very active and pushing out stuff, or it has been until the last month or so, but most of what it's pushing out is really old hats. It's it's uh, old videos of long dead talking heads who uh, have just sort of been resurrected from the archive. But was interesting last week to see this 60-page document 
suddenly pop up just after there'd been so much talk about, well, what is it now? What is Al-Qaeda? How do we define it now? And this document was all about defining it. Now, I have to say, um, I sort of skimmed through the Arabic pretty quickly. And stylistically, there's a, a whole lot of waffle and platitudes. That I, I guess, you know, one expects that um, in, in, in some of these publications. There wasn't that much meat in it. But three things did strike me. Uh, one of them was its emphasis on the local. Um, so it, it, it articulates two lines of activity within Al-Qaeda more generally, and it said, you know, pursuing its overarching global goals, uh, the kinds of things that the global leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, has been at great pains to try to entrench. You know, we're all part of the same battle, folks. But then it specifically stressed that each Al-Qaeda regional bit has its own specifically local agenda. Uh, and that was very much spelt out. So that interested me. And then the mm. second thing that interested me was the goals that it defined. Yes, the usual two, expelling infidels from Muslim lands, establishing a caliphate. But it seemed sort of less discriminating. It said it was all, all for targeting not just militaries of uh, foreign governments, but, but also foreign governments organizations. And it kept mentioning different organizations. So I wondered whether this was now broadening out to maybe aid organizations or the UN. It wasn't clear. And the third thing was that it stressed, this is the most interesting, it stressed Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's complete and utter independence of states and governments and their proxies mm. and arms and militias on the ground. And, and so that seemed to me a bit, you know, he does protest too much. Uh, they were <laughs> trying so hard to say that they were not in any way beholden to anybody. Oh, by the way, with the distinct exception of Afghanistan, the Islamic Emirates of the Taliban, as they called right. it, they said, no, no, we're, we're quite happy to be associated with them. But anyway, Al-Qaeda said that it had needed to make this point of independence in response to questions that had been raised inside and outside the organization. So it sounds to me like they have a case to answer. They have a case to answer, and they clearly have a perception problem if they're issuing a 60-page document trying to explain the point that we're not the pawn of some foreign government. Uh, that's quite illuminating <laughs> yeah. in and of itself. Uh, perhaps we should uh, return uh, turn to one of uh, the enemies of AQAP that we have not yet mentioned, and that is the Islamic State's franchise, what it calls the uh, Yemen province. The Islamic State's uh, franchises are all called provinces. That doesn't mean necessarily that they control territory. And in Yemen, I, I believe that they do not control a an inch of territory. Um, so that is something to, to understand. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of, of that group and how AQAP has responded to it and how it has fared? Yes, yeah, so Islamic State in Yemen, you're absolutely right, does not control territory in Yemen and, and never did, actually. It never fared as well as AQAP. Uh, in the early days, so it announced itself in late 2014, it uh, declared its Yemen province, and, and it benefited early on from defectors from Al-Qaeda who, you know, had been waiting around for years for a caliphate to appear and it hadn't happened and they were fed up. So this seemed like a, a good enterprise to join and it had a lot of media coverage and razzmatazz around it. But um, it didn't take off in Yemen for several reasons. And I think these could be summarized as indiscriminate brutality 
Now, you know, there were especially two mosque bombings in 2015 that that killed or maimed um, over 500 people. That horrified Yemenis, even jihadis, especially having attacked mosques. And uh, another reason why it didn't take off, just that it was poorly attuned in its messaging. Al-Qaeda had a lot more experience. And, and of course, this is something I work on very specifically, the, the songs and the poems of a movement and how they managed to address local populations. Also, Islamic states, it had, it had weak tribal links compared to Al-Qaeda, which, had, which was much more entrenched, much more longevity. And then finally, Islamic State was quite overbearing. It was arrogant. And we know this from ISIS defectors, from their testimonies and, and from their official complaints. Uh, by 2016, actually, there were 15 court cases in an internal jihadi court against Islamic State's leaders. So they were eventually pushed back to a central region of Yemen. And then in 2017, the US struck its two main training camps with airstrikes and, and looked like they, they just looked like they were completely wiped out. And they did pop up again. It was shortly, and they had, pub- they had, publicized, they had publicized the these training camps in a photo series, right? And didn't that help the United States to identify the location? Uh, that is indeed the case. Uh, and I, you, in fact, tweeted about it famously, I seem to remember. But um, what, what they had done is they'd shown monkey bars and all sorts of training equipment, um, which, which were pretty easy, I guess, to identify in a desolate area of Al-Baidar. And it was only about 10 days after that photo set was published that the airstrikes were called in. So I, I suspect it had something to do with it. But uh, anyway, they popped up again. They emerged from the ashes of those airstrikes a few months later in early 2018. But it was a suspiciously different version of Islamic State that popped up. It was much more earthy, much more locally tribal, and uh, and it was much more heavily, heavily focused on doing nothing other than attacking al-Qaeda rather than the Houthis. And, and that indeed is what happened. They provoked al-Qaeda into an open war. And for about two years, both al-Qaeda and Islamic State in Yemen did very little other than kill each other. Uh, so by middle of 2020, both groups were, were greatly weakened. And uh, following a counter-terrorism push by the Houthis into central Yemen, which might have been accompanied by some other more you know, inconspicuous dismantling of apparatus, the Islamic State in Yemen pretty much disappeared. Can't say that's too regrettable. So if we're looking today at the, the relative strengths of, of these organizations, it sounds like Islamic State, Yemen province is, uh, you know, kind of secondary, of secondary importance and AQAP could possibly be uh, poised for a resurgence. How, what are, what are the things that might affect a potential AQAP resurgence? What should we be looking out for? Yeah, so as you say, both groups are, are weakened, um, but Al-Qaeda at least still remains in some kind of form. What could help it come back? Well, in, in a sense, either way this war pans out, at the moment, it's, it's set for a resurgence because, you know, if the war continues and Yemen continues to fragment, um, then that offers an opportunity 
even if al-Qaeda actually melts into other militias, you know, it'd still be there. But oddly and perversely, I, I believe that a ceasefire too could have the effect of helping al-Qaeda to come back. And that sound, you know, that sounds contradictory. But but the reason is that it's very unclear that the powers who would be negotiating or who are negotiating that ceasefire are actually in control of their forces on the ground. So mm. fighting has become a real way of life in Yemen. In, in, in the Houthi areas, for example, they, they've had over 17 years of war now since uh, 2004. So, and, and again, in the South, there are lots of people who don't want to stop fighting, not until they've perhaps got their separate Southern state or their separate Eastern region, or they've secured some more spoils. And what if all the salaries were to stop? There's a really big problem in Yemen, which is that there are a lot of armed militias that have been recruited for the war. And yet, the coalition that's been paying and recruiting them isn't necessarily the beneficiary of their ultimate loyalty. It's very different being anti-Houthi from being pro-government. The two are not the same. So you might be fighting for the government at the moment because you've got a salary. It doesn't mean, and because you're anti-Houthi, it doesn't mean that you want to support the government. So what happens to the thousands of fighters hired by our allies, um, and particularly the Salafi mm. fighters, funded and armed by the United Arab Emirates in the South, what happens when their vision starts to diverge from those of their funders, those who've negotiated the ceasefire? I think there'll be a lot of disgruntled people on the ground and they will take, Al-Qaeda will take the opportunity to align with them, to feed off those grievances. I just want to come back to this, this kind of uh, uh, almost counterintuitive point that you've been making, which is that if there is a ceasefire, it might actually fuel Al-Qaeda's uh, prospects for for resurgence, and so is the point that you're making that there won't actually be if there is a quote unquote ceasefire, it won't materialize on the ground because there won't be control from the parties uh, responsible for reaching that ceasefire, and there's is it's just too much chaos on the ground. Is that is that do I understand correctly? I th that's my main point. That I I think that commanders and warring parties and allies and appointed mediators talk a good game and they claim to be in control of particular areas or particular tribes. Now, whether or not they are is uh, not at all clear. Um, and so that's one point. But also, okay, maybe a ceasefire would work for a bit, but if then the ensuing peace talks are not inclusive, if there are areas and pockets of the population that feel disappointed and they don't feel that the peace talks speak for them. They don't like the solutions that have been reached. And with such a patchwork country, as I described at the beginning of this podcast, with so many different regions and competing interests and uh, different cultures and fiefdoms, it's going to be very, very hard to roll out peace. And of course, Al-Qaeda has a very strong track record of of taking local grievances and then spinning them to fit a, a global jihadi narrative. Right, so that is a quite quite a pickle. Uh, the the Yemen uh, conflict. I like how you you define it as a, a patchwork country that that makes it, I think, quite um, resistant to to 
solutions and ceasefires imposed from abroad. That leads me to another question, which is that if, if a ceasefire or some sort of attempted um, reconciliation in the country is not going to diminish the jihadi threat in Yemen, it's not going to hurt AQAP, um, what is the kind of strategy that the West could could follow for trying to, to diminish uh, the the problem. The United States, of course, has had a drone strike heavy approach to Yemen. This has even been held up as a kind of model that we could uh, that we could imitate in Afghanistan if need be. Um, so, how do you evaluate that that sort of drone strike uh, heavy approach? Is that having the intended effect? And if not, then what what is something else that the United States and its allies could could promote? Well, gosh, as an alternative, a dra- <laughs> A drone strike strategy. Yeah, of course, this is really un- unpalatable um, to anyone who's interested in human rights and the rule of law. But being completely objective, it has actually been effective. It has been quite effective in Yemen. It's completely weakened the movement. It's decapitated the movement. They've had a constant turnover. Al Qaeda's had a constant turnover of leaders. And so although new leaders are always found, they're not necessarily so capable and they're ever, they've got an ever-decreasing pool of, of, of capable, experienced leaders. And of course, they can't communicate properly because it's too dangerous. They're going to be struck by drones. And it's also led to a, a, a culture of infighting, of suspicion, um, which they can't address because they can't have big meetings. So it has been very effective. The problem with drone strikes is that it's not a long-term solution. And it has blowback. For example, it, you know, it generates new cycles of revenge. It actually, it actually raises fear and anger in ordinary populations, which then start to be more sympathetic with Al-Qaeda, whereas they weren't previously. And, and of course, it just doesn't kill ideology. So you, you know, as, as everyone always says, you can kill people, but you can't kill ideas. And so Drone strikes are never going to be a good long-term solution, if indeed they're a good solution at all. What should therefore happen? Well, I guess what really should happen is removing the drivers of sympathy or toleration for Al-Qaeda, not just the drivers of extremism, but why do people put up with these people in their communities? Why do people put up with Al-Qaeda amongst them when it's a very well-armed population? And the reason is that they've suffered greatly from corrupt and nepotistic governments that have been propped up by the West. You know, governments that have siphoned off aid money, counterterrorism money, and 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 you know, the West has propped them up in the name of maintaining stability. So actually what needs to happen is a much more grassroots approach and investing in populations, building capability, creating jobs, improving daily life, finding access to services, better education and improving transparency, accountability, all of these things at a grassroots level rather than completely top down would have a massive impact on pulling the rug from under organizations like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And that all needs to start before the war ends. So this is clearly a a long-term problem in Yemen, a long-term terrorism problem for for the West, for the world. Uh, But especially it's a 
a problem for the Yemenis. Um, Liz, I know you're very much involved in these uh, grassroots efforts, and we salute those efforts, and we hope that uh, Yemen sees brighter days ahead. Uh, so Elizabeth Kendall, with that, we will end. Thank you very much for coming on the Caravan Podcast. You can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Dr. Underscore E underscore Kendall. Again, I recommend her recent article for the CTC Sentinel, which is titled 20 Years After 9-11, The Jihadi Threat in the Arabian Peninsula. Please subscribe to the podcast, the Caravan Podcast. My, Rus- my colleague Russell Berman will be back later this month for the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.